0: Hello and welcome, this is the Boundless Book Club with the Emirates Literature Foundation. You are here with Ahlam, Andrea, and me, Annabelle. And today our special guest is Miles Buckridge, a reporter from What's On. Um, Miles is a sci-fi enthusiast, a banner carrier for geekdom, and a man who believes in love being a crucial part of living your best life. Here, <laughs> here. Which brings us to our topic <laughs> for today. Stevie Wonder just called to say it, Meatloaf would do anything for it. The Beatles say they can't buy it. Julius Caesar and Cleopatra allegedly had it, and Scheherazade won it, and with it, her life. So I think you've guessed it by now. Today, we are talking about love. And I want to start by asking you all your opinion on this. Is Romeo and Juliet the most romantic love story of all time?
1: Oh, big question
2: the original star-crossed lovers. <laughs>
0: <laughs> because you can't really have a conversation about love, I found anyway, without Romeo and Juliet coming up at least once or twice. Now I have opinions on this, which I'm going to reserve them <laughs> until other people <laughs> have had thoughts and comments and questions.
2: I don't know, I think I think you love it or hate it, but it is, it is the first, for me, I feel like it was the first experience of studying love in school and when you're a teenager you know, reading about Romeo and Juliet and they're quite young. I think they're, she was 16 and he was four. No, sorry, 13 and 14. Yeah, so they're
3: really young and it's like the first love story that you come across. I feel like when you are really young and you're reading that in school, for that to be the first, uh, the first vision of love that you get is quite damaging. <laughs>
1: That's true, that is true. I mean, it's, it's definitely passionate, isn't it? I think we can say that, whatever it is, whether it's kind of lust or, 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 or something else slightly grander, it's definitely passionate, you know?
2: So there's one part in the story that I love, obviously the balcony scene, you know, the, the scene where after the party, he comes back to find her in the house um, and he's confessing his love to her and she says to him to swear and then she says, oh, swear not by the moon, the constant moon that monthly changes in her circle orb, lest that thy love prove likewise variable. And he says, what shall I swear by? Do not swear at all, or if thou wilt swear by thy generous self, which is the god of my idolatry, and I'll believe thee. So I think whether you love the story or not, you can't you can't deny (laughs) the beauty of the language there
1: absolutely
0: i think with any anything shakespeare it doesn't really matter what you think about the plot and how all of the problems could be simply avoided by them communicating with one another (laughs) (laughs) just a little bit more um it always comes back to the language doesn't it i mean he just says everything so well and you know we still refer to star-crossed lovers beyond romeo and juliet but i think the thing that i love the most and i know it's very easy to for me to be cynical and glib about Romeo and Juliet. And so in anticipation of this, I tried to do a little bit more research and think about it a little bit more. And it's just, you know, when you were talking about that whole phrase about constancy, What's hilarious mm. to me is that earlier on in that scene, like he was engaged to someone else. He sees her at a party <laughs> and is immediately in love with her. A little bit yeah, inconsistent. Good point. I mean, as you do
2: when you're teenagers, right? Yeah. But,
0: yeah. but on, that, on that note about teenagers that you were talking about, like when you read it, I think is really important as well. But also the fact that it's about teenage love. And I think it's quite it, it's easy to be cynical about teenagers falling in love and to be very dismissive of it and I don't know if you felt this way growing up, but it never felt less real or less intense or less important, no. right?
3: True, yeah.
0: And I think mm-hmm. that's something that, i are not gonna talk about Normal People by Sally Rooney today, but <laughs> it's, it's something that I think a lot of people have referenced or talked about um, and really liked about that book, is that a big portion of it is two people, like two teenagers forming a very intense, deep, meaningful mm-hmm. attachment at a very young age and not minimizing that or making it or or, or trivializing it. So it doesn't really matter how sensible (laughs) Romeo and Juliet is or kind of what you think of the characters, but the fact that there's this great tragedy with these teenagers Mm. at the heart of it. And
2: it's it's raw, right? At that point, like they don't have any idea what it's supposed to look like or there's no other factors but the feelings of that moment and then they just fall super intensely
1: into it and disapproving parents as well, which which mm. proves to be a universal sort of yeah. constant yeah. throughout history and um, families that, that don't get on or approve of, of their their offspring's choice in part. Right.
3: Where True. would we be without mother-in-law jokes? <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> so
2: Miles, how does it feel like being on a love episode with three women?
1: <laughs> um, that's a, it's a very good question. Um, I, I was, it's an honour, obviously, and a privilege. Um, but yeah, I I've al- I would always describe myself as a a, a lover more than a fighter, anyway. Um, so yeah, I feel I'd, maybe not that I've earned my place here, but I feel I feel at home. Thank you, um, thank you very much for the lovely intro and for inviting me on as well. Um, it's an honour to be here. Thank you.
0: We started with a question about Romeo and Juliet mm. because it comes up so often. So we've got Romeo and Juliet out of the way now, and we're moving on. So, yeah. what have you chosen today? Like, is it a great big epic love story, or what's your love choice?
1: Kind of. It's for me. For me, it's um, it's bigger and epic, and love is is most certainly um, not necessarily uh, uh, the, the the passionate love between a a, a man and a woman or, or two uh, two lovers more. A case of uh, love as a general theme um, that transcends um, mortality. Even the, the book that I've chosen is uh, Cloud Atlas by David Mitchell, um, who's who's one of my favourite authors anyway, because he, he tends to to write quite kind of bizarre, abstract stories that that, and that's that's massively what I'm into. Mm. So, but yeah, uh, and, and Cloud Atlas. In terms of its structure um, it's quite fascinating that, that we're talking about this now because there's a, a film out at the moment which although doesn't touch on any of the same subject matter follows a very similar structure and um, tenant I don't you know that, that's out in the cinemas mm-hmm. at the moment is gotten eerily am I, is that a spoiler? hopefully not <laughs> um, <laughs> <anyway>. <laughs> So yeah the, the, the cloud atlas was I think that's possibly the first book of, of uh, David Mitchell's that I read and uh, it was recommended by a friend and yeah it's it's a it's the a series of, of six different stories leading sort of from one uh, chronological period to another um and moving on in a weird kind of uh, pyramid shape and then it kind of goes back down again so it's separated into different stories some are comic some are kind of film noir style um and 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 Culminating in kind of a, a futuristic sci-fi um, adventure, but they all have common characters, or at least characters that are um, reincarnations of one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's about these relationships and these between individuals and between uh, institutions that that kind of transcend particular lives. Um, and I, I find that kind of beautiful. This idea that maybe there is something um, something about our soul or, or whatever it is, um, in, the immaterial ethereal being that is able to kind of leap into these these next um, avatars or whatever. And I don't know whether you want to call it reincarnation or, or, mm. or what, um, but it's, it's a beautiful idea to me, like the idea of a soulmate, I guess. It's, uh, it's, a, it's always a fascinating one.
3: I think it's a great choice. He's such an interesting writer. And I, when I, I think when I read his first novel, Which is called number nine dream, I think. I thought he was quite similar to Murakami in that sort of abstract way, which is Mm -hmm. also absolutely wonderful. Mm -hmm. Did we have him Mm -hmm. in the festival? I think so. He has been, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes.
0: Yeah he was here a few years ago to talk about the bone clocks, which, and that was my first David Mitchell. Mm-hmm. So if Cloud Atlas is anything similar to that in terms of like swapping between characters and playing with structure and just being completely mad, then I'm, I'm, I'm all for it.
2: it is very much,
1: <laughs> It is very much like that, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right. very much like sort of disregard for the linear kind of process of things, which I kind of enjoy a little bit.
2: So when you think about the story, does it, do you think of it as a love story?
1: Not initially, but um, certainly it's when, when one of the things that I took away whilst I was reading it was very much this idea of soulmates. And it's something that I still think about to this day and and not necessarily in regards Mm. to the book, but yeah, it's such a fascinating idea to to me, the idea of having this predestined partner for for you and, and whether or not you know, that's uh, reality or or it's part of love's folly. I don't, I don't know. I can't answer it uh, with any definitive conclusion. But yeah, that's, for me, that was one of the the big points that I got out of the book, was very much this idea that, yeah, that there is someone out there that can, that can draw the best out of you or that, that's almost, you're drawn together, there's some kind of Invisible force, invisible energy—that's compelling you. You are inextricably part of that other person's story. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that that very much was yeah w- was evident in the story.
3: That's a really beautiful idea, I think. But it's also very much like Romeo and Juliet. It's it's got that <laughs> intensity of feeling. Can I jump in with my book here? Sorry, that yes. it's got that intensity of feeling that John Armstrong argues might be not um, not what we should be aiming for. This book is called "The Conditions of Love: The Philosophy of Intimacy," and it's a really um, it's a really sort of elegant, slender little book, which is absolutely lovely. It's really erudite and intellectual and When you read it you feel like you are even if you're not like me it's completely accessible and it looks at love through the lens of literature starting with goethe in 1770 something or other talking about like the first romance novel which is really interesting i I don't know if it was the first romance novel but according to john it was and it's it's about this um this man who has all those Super intense feelings of feelings of love, which is you know, the rapture and the obsess obsession and the longing and then the doubt, and it's, there's nothing really about the his, the object of his affection. It's all about his feelings, which are so intense, and that was the the talk of the town in Europe in the 1700s, apparently, and that came to equal our modern understanding of love, which I find really fascinating. And then he keeps going from from Goethe to Plato to Socrates and Tolstoy, and he uses all these different stories to kind of discuss what love is and what it what we should expect from it. And it's really it's really fascinating. It's it's it says things like sorry. When I read it the first time, I, I underlined so many things that um i want to come back to love is closely connected with our vision of happiness yet there is no one we're more likely to hurt or be hurt by than the person that we say we love so why is it so hard to find love and so difficult to keep and then he talks about how love the popular opinion is that love is a feeling but we need to perhaps see it more as a as a verb it's something that you do actively every Mm -hmm. day and if you stop doing it it's gone and it's just it's really lovely and it comes to um, it's it, it's just really wonderful to read and it's very quick so I recommend it to everybody but I just want to read this little bit towards the end where it says imagine Hamlet as a father imagine Kathy discussing mortgage payment with Heathcliff this is the internal tragedy of love if it's successful it changes when love is successful, it leads to a new set of actions like children and buying property and doing the dishes. Coping with even moderate coping even moderately well with these require a completely different set of qualities to the ones that we fell in love with. And um, yeah, I don't know. I don't recognize any of
2: that. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, you know, I, and, and I when you think about love, I mean, it's, it's fascinating that your angle was more like a philosophical view on love. And is like, is love a real thing or is it something that human beings, you know, it's a feeling, but they coupled up with a lot of structure and action yeah. and, you know, tangible things that are related to love. And so where does the you know, where is it? Does the human need part stop and then where, where does love start? Um, And I wonder about that. I wonder if love is a a man-made concept.
3: I I don't think that you can deny that these feelings are real and also that the the sort of mature love that he's also referring to is real. But they might be different things. Maybe we need more words
1: for them. Absolutely.
3: I thought it was uh, interesting
0: that you were bringing up the concept of soulmates there and you were talking about love being an active thing like that there's a there's yes. a conscious choice in the word i'll I'll read cloud atlas and i'll see how i feel about it but i've always been very firm in the opinion of soulmates and it's a it's a phrase that's actually uh, not annoyed me but it has jarred with my perception of love mm. because i think that the beauty of it and maybe this is just a different love in a different stage but it's consciously choosing it it's mm-hmm. it's kind of saying that you have the agency to choose something else but you choose this that you choose yes mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and so that that's that's why i think the word has always felt quite trite to me
1: mm-hmm. yeah absolutely i think it comes it comes with a lot of baggage doesn't it soul- soulmates it's it's not knocked around a lot and um and possibly not always in the in the most um o- authentic way um but yeah i uh, i think uh, what i found interesting about your your um, uh, little intro uh, to it there and uh, which i totally agree with um you were talking about phases of, of love and i think that's another important thing to, to recognize or an element or uh, aspect of what we we group under the term love is that there, it is as well as being a verb it's also a, a kind of a, a process isn't it it's it, it um it ages not necessarily in a, a, a negative way but it changes it it, it evolves the, the the kind of the romeo and Juliet love might be phase one which sadly obviously they they didn't get to to, to go any further <laughs> yeah
3: you, you should try you should try not to kill yourself yes. in phase no, one one, that one to <laughs> ten
2: super quickly
3: all you had to do was wait five minutes
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh
3: you be, youth been so impatient
1: yeah absolutely
0: so when when you think of love and you think of soulmates mm-hmm. and all of this, like what, what do you think of? What was the book that you picked up?
2: So when I think about love stories, for some reason I'm really attracted to the tra- tragedy element. And the story that I've chosen today is Broken Wings by Khalil Gibran. Gibran is himself in the story and he's very young he's a 17 year old and he goes back to Lebanon from the states and he's um, he goes to Beirut and he goes to visit one of his father's old friends Faris Karama who is very well respected uh, in Beirut a very wealthy man very kind generous and he welcomes him into his home and when he walks in he sees his daughter Selma Karama and uh, immediately falls in love with Selma and Selma has this very angelic Aura about her, she's also dressed in white and just a very calm and soothing aura and soft-spoken and just taking care of her father, very generous to the guest and he just falls in love with her madly. And so they all sit together and they're in the middle of the conversation and then the bishop uh, sends someone to come collect Faris Karama and bring him to him. So Jibran and Selmar left alone in the house, Faris Karama goes to the bishop and as they're falling deeply, madly in love at first sight, uh, the bishop is proposing to Selma uh, for her son, for his son from uh, Faris Karama in the same moment. So it doesn't last very long. And so so it's very painful. And eventually they come to know about it. But in that time and in the story, you know, women don't really have a strong say or a will of themselves. So Selma is very much having to, go with whatever her father thinks is best for her. Um, she doesn't fight it, and, and she, she thinks it's her duty to uh, oblige and, and go with, this, with the situation. So the scene that I love in the book is one day Selma meets Gibran uh, in the church and tells him, look, this is going to happen tomorrow. I'm going to be somebody else's wife. And so um, we can't be, but I want you to be happy. I want you to find joy. And um, so he says to her, I'll be whatever you want me to be. What do you want me to be? And she goes on to say to him um i want you to love me as a poet loves his sorrowful thoughts i want you to remember me as a traveler remembers a calm pool in which his image was reflected as he drank its water i want you to remember me as a mother remembers her child that died before it saw the light and i want you to remember me as a merciful king remembers a prisoner who died before his pardon reached him so she goes on and on and says to him what what she wants of him and then in the end she says And the end of this scene not the whole story (laughs) she says uh tomorrow the truth will become ghostly and the awakening will be like a dream will a lover be satisfied embracing a ghost or will a thirsty man quench his thirst from the spring of a dream and that moment is really powerful for me because um, this is a love that cannot be but in that moment they're making it immortal and it's this perfect love that they've just defined and they're going to carry with them for the rest of their lives. And and it's interesting because a love like that, I feel it just grows and grows in your imagination and in your heart. And you feel like it it just becomes this you know perfect thing in in your image if because you never got to it but you know who knows selma and gibran could have gotten married and then (laughs) you know been fighting over laundry or (laughs) (laughs) have other problems and not work out but you know it's it's that kind of uh, immortality of the feeling that that you take with you uh when a love is not fulfilled like romeo and juliet
3: The most perfect love is the one that never happens, right? Mm -hmm. That's the only perfect kind.
2: I think so. I think, I mean, certainly in, in, you know, in literature and in the way that you romanticize
0: love in in your mind. I'm just thinking that if there are any romance novelists who read that, they're just going to resign immediately. (laughs) (laughs) You just
2: read that and you go, well,
0: uh, I'll be going.
2: Oh my God, yeah. Debron, Debron, I, I, Like my dream is like my fantasy is that Debran would have still been alive, and I would have heard his audio book in his own voice of Broken Dream. <laughs> <So, laughs> I want to hear him read this.
1: <laughs> in terms of real life, um, the, the only time when you communicate with a, with a, somebody in a relationship with on that level, talking about the love that's between you or describing or trying to sort of, you know, um, to, to make them feel the, the, the intensity the, the, of your love is normally either if you've done something wrong or on a, a special <laughs> special occasion, like a birthday or an anniversary, but maybe it's something that we should force ourselves to, to, to do more, to sort of share and in that experience and release that oxytocin and, 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 and be in, be in the moment and enjoy the thing. That's a
3: really good point, but it wouldn't be that poetic if you've been married for fift- for ten years.
1: True, true. It'd be like,
3: true. I, 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 think it's a great thing that you cleaned up this area that you had, <laughs> yeah. and I
1: will,
3: and I will let you live another day, my love.
1: <laughs> yeah. See,
3: love has become so practical, so unromantic. <laughs> yes. And I just say, I, I had a look on Goodreads to see what people said about this book and someone had given it one star because they still believed in true love. And I thought, that's not thats not how you rate books. They're like, no.
1: What's fascinating to me is um, I think the. Well, probably one of the last great bastions of this kind of um, unachievable love, should we say, if I can I go that far, can I say that, um, would be Disney, right? That's the kind, of, if you want to sort of mock someone for their particular point of view, if it's too, you know, rosy and your view of love is, is, you know, Disney princess or prince-esque. But now with the Pixar movies, which are obviously part of uh, part of Disney, their, their stories about love are much more, grown up and adult and, mm. and complicated and, yeah and and i think that's I, I think it's brilliant i think it's so important mm. for for kids to to understand that that yes there is this type of all-consuming love but there there's also this mm-hmm. this equally beautiful complicated messy mucky love yeah. that that makes you work that that, as you say is a verb it's something that you have to to concentrate on and yeah sometimes you chase it and it it moves further away but sometimes yeah yeah. and so so yeah Yeah. i think that's an interesting direction
2: it's great that the understanding of love has evolved in literature and film and cartoons Mm -hmm. that kids are exposed to so our final book for the episode, Annabelle.
0: Okay, well, a uh, 16-year-old me would be very confused about Tell the fact you. that I am on a podcast about love and literature and I'm not choosing the Jane Austen. What? <laughs> <laughs> That's
3: confusing.
0: But no, uh, I I nearly chose Persuasion by Jane Austen. But the thing is, everyone knows she does it well. And I thought today I would talk about some non-fiction that has an epic love story that you might not realize from just reading the blurb on the back and looking at the title. But this really surprised me. So I won't go into too much detail because the joy of this book is just being completely overwhelmed by everything that David Knott goes through. He's basically, when he's not a doctor in the UK, basically takes unpaid leave to go to war zones and work on the front line, putting his life at, at risk for what he does. So... You meet him going to Sarajevo in 1993 and then working in uh, Aleppo as well, war zones there. So the thing about it is that he uses quite straightforward language and he doesn't really spare you any of the details. So if he's talking about a surgery and he's talking about horrific things going wrong, snipers in Syria specifically targeting pregnant women, it's horrific reading. And it talks about all of the things that he's seen and done, all the people that he's helped um, the brutality that he's seen, but also, in contrast, the immense kindness that's gone with that. And so when you have the backdrop of all of the horrors of war and the trauma, to then kind of be confronted with, because um, it's his memoir, of him experiencing kindness from other people, um, and then quite far into his life, when he's in his 50s, um, and quite far into the book, meeting his wife at the point where because of what he does he's you know given up on love he's given up on the idea that he might ever have a family so when you've gone through that journey with him and then he meets um his current wife ellie at a fundraiser for syria and then he's in gaza he's operating and he's described this as you know basically being like an being in an apocalypse or what he imagines that would be like and her business card drops out onto the floor and he's in Gaza in this chaos and he thinks this is just random enough that you know I'm just I'm just going to email I'm just going to email Ellie and tell her that I think that she is a nice person because I might die here so what have I got to lose And so he emails her and after all of this is done and he goes back to the UK, he's basically, he's asked her out for dinner, she's agreed and he's gone back and he's sort of kind of regretting it. And I'm just going to read you that little bit where he's, he finally gets to the date, their first date, um, and he's in the restaurant somewhere in Chelsea. He says, I found it even more difficult to appreciate that I was now sitting opposite someone I'd only emailed because I'd thought that I was going to die. It seemed an inauspicious way to begin whatever this was, or might become. I had had many disastrous relationships in the past, some lasting longer than others, but they had all fallen by the wayside. I had always longed for a partner, maybe even a family, but simply had not met the right person. I assumed, too, that there was no one who could possibly want me. I still harboured a sliver of hope, though. Maybe this would be the final roll of the dice from that point on it's not straightforward either um he finds it very difficult to readjust obviously to normal life and routine and a really beautiful part of this book is not just how incredible he is as a human being but how amazing his wife is at bringing him back from all of that and being there for him and so this was kind of the most unlikely best love story in literature for me, because it just, it felt so compassionate and so real. And when you finish the book as well, you're actually met with an afterword by Eleanor, his wife, and she says something really beautiful about kind of the concept of uh, romantic love and heroism, because she says, second only to stories of romantic love, you've got the tale of the hero undertaking a mission. And then she goes on to say that society demands heroes, but we don't necessarily want them to be too human. She continues to say, love like surgery isn't always tidy, and it isn't always easy. In many ways, rushing in and out of war zones is easier than the day in day out normality of home life. You won't always be the hero and savior. There will be routine, boredom, and difficult conversations. I often have to remind myself what an adjustment married life and fatherhood must be for David, someone who has lived so much of his life on the razor's edge, and in a fair degree of emotional isolation. There was also, there's a Desert Island Discs interview that he's done as well that he mentions in the book. And if if you're familiar with Desert Island Discs, one of the things that you have to do is obviously choose music that is important to you. And there is a bit where he introduces Fix You by Coldplay and he starts to introduce it and he starts choking up because, and the, and the presenter is as well, because he can't really talk about it without getting very emotional. And they play the song and basically he, he's chosen it because he spent so long thinking, you know, going around the world, fixing other people, fixing all of these horrible things. And then Eleanor was the one who fixed him. Wow. Beautiful. Yeah. I highly recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, read with really tissues
2: not. that's a great choice four four very different approaches to love which
0: was really interesting this episode yeah that's the point of love isn't it you know it's all different for everyone
1: do you think there's a there's an element of of love that that thrives in uh juxtaposition so say for example as you said those two very different environments war zone versus mundane routine you know people always say that, that opposites attract um that there is there's almost two jagged sides of a, a jigsaw puzzle and that's part of that exploration of of difference of the exotic of of um if there's something elemental about love that is almost searching for the opposite i don't know
3: i don't know if there's a rule for that
2: um mm. i don't know i think a balance is important especially when it comes to energy and um approach so you know maybe if, if someone is overly emotional and someone is like more rational they kind of balance each other out in that they meet somewhere yeah. in the middle or you know if if someone doesn't plan at all and someone is a is a planner they kind of find a way to meet in, in the middle yeah. it's, it's good whereas if both are sort of out of balance <laughs> on certain things comes down to that practical that execution of love right <laughs> it's execution <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. D- different kinds of love i guess the, the kind of the, the love from 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 friction is is different to the mm. to the love from from simpatica or whatever you know the the overlapping of, of two different worlds yeah mm.
0: because this is a book club what kind of love do you think makes the best story
3: unrequited mm.
1: oh that's a good one yeah <laughs> i think unrequited love is a brilliant one i can't steal that i've got to, got to come out with my own one um <laughs> but i fully fully endorse that answer
3: did you guys read a little life no no it was it was very very traumatic mm. but that was one of those great love stories that just that you just don't forget that became a movement there were people in new york with t-shirts with jude and um I don't remember the other guy's name right now. Who is it by? Who is the author? Uh, hani Yanagihara, I think her name is. Okay. It's, I think she. I think it's like her only novel possibly, and it's it was like this uh, thick. Yeah. <laughs> and it it was it like reading it takes a lot out of you. I think it took a lot out of her. I think in an interview after she said she wasn't sure she would write another. But yeah, that that love is in that book. There are lots of different people with different sort of approaches to love to this mm. main character but but it 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 takes years it's years of of trauma before it comes to fruition and and, and it's very short-lived and it's just it's, it's it'll stay with you forever if you read it and uh that's another one that's not great for a book club because it's very traumatizing.
1: <laughs>
2: yeah i think i think you know the the sort of the the part of longing is is a really key element of of a Mm. good love story whether that's Mm. some someone you aspire to to attaining or someone you've lost so i think that that longing is a big part
0: well actually looking at television series as well tells us that that is a compelling story that like we find universally compelling because every Mm. single television sitcom has that will-they-won't-they storyline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have it in yeah. Friends, you have it in, what was yeah. it, Cheers or whatever, it, it's, it's always yeah. there because <laughs> it keeps us, like it reels us in. So just- What happens the, in the end? Yeah, so mm-hmm. from the point of view of constructing a narrative and keeping people reading, I mean, it makes practical sense, I think, for that to be, be make a good story.
3: Yeah. Because we just wanna know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do you think is most epic romance in literature? We would love to know what you think. Let us know by emailing comms at emirateslipfest.com or you can send us a message on social media. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. If you're watching rather than listening, you'll know we're on YouTube. Don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And the next time we are going to be looking at the Booker Prize shortlist. So do tune in. From all of us here at the Boundless Book Club, goodbye. Be safe. Read the books and stay classy, San Diego. Can I say that? (laughs) Yeah. 60% of the time it works every time. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. Bye. Thank you very much. See you guys. Thank you, Miles.